Well, that is a catchy song, right? It's a catchy song, and it's, it's okay to admit it. It's a catchy song. It's actually a, a very well-written song. However, it is also a, a fundamentally flawed song. It's a wicked little enticement wrapped up in a catchy melody that draws a dangerous theological conclusion. Only the good die young. Only the good die young. In other words, the good are those who miss out on all this mortal life has to offer. They never told you the price that you pay. All the things that you might have done, Billy Joel sings. Now, what's he really saying? What's he really saying? What's he really getting at? What he's really saying is this. Virginia, you're missing out. You are missing out on what the good life has to offer. You're a prude, wasting her life away in a prudish castle of self-righteous isolation. Now, if you haven't figured it out by now, today's sermon is on sin. And so far, we've been presented with two very different perspectives on sin. Two very different philosophies of life. We've been presented with the perspective of James, the apostle, and we've been presented with the perspective of Billy Joel, the piano man, right? The question is, who is right? Who's right? Jesus' little brother or the guy with the chops? Well, one says sin leads to death. The other says, whatever, only the good die young. One was martyred in AD 62. The other is still alive and kicking somewhere in Long Island today. So who is right? Two very different philosophies of life, two very different perspectives on sin. And the question remains, who's right? Now, if you're anything like me, you tend to recoil when you hear that the sermon is going to be about sin. We think, oh no, here here comes the fire and brimstone. And I have to admit, that was my reaction when I realized what passage I got stuck with. (laughs) He says facetiously, right? You see, I'm very familiar with James. It's one of my favorite books in all the Bible. But I was maybe a little less than excited when I realized that I was preaching on sin. But but here's the thing about the Bible. You you can study a single book. A book for, for 20 plus years, as I have done with the book of James, and still be stunned by what you find in its pages. So when I, I first realized what passage I'd be preaching on, I, I thought to myself, how am I going to preach on this? How am I going to preach on this? Who am I to preach on, on sin? I am a sinner. And some of you are sitting out there like, oh yeah, we know, we're well aware. Pastor Dan, right? <laughs> And it's okay. I get that. I I receive that from you. I am a sinner. But you know what? Eh, You are too. Right? You are too. And that was actually what was really bugging me about this whole thing. How can one sinner preach a sermon on sin to a room full of sinners? But as I looked on this familiar passage, the Lord began to break the hardened ground of my heart and allow me to see with fresh eyes a beautiful truth. When we take the gospel into account, a sermon about sin is really a sermon about love. A sermon about sin is really a sermon about love. It's about what we love, 
right? It's about the orientation of our desires and our affections towards God in this world. But it's also about what God loves. It's about, it's about the orientation of his desires and affections towards us in this world. So a sinner like me can, can, preach, to a, a, can preach a sermon about sin to a, a room full of sinners like you because at the end of the day, a sermon on sin is really a sermon about love. How so? Well, that's what we're going to explore today. So take your Bibles and turn with me to James chapter 1. And we're going to be in verses 12 through 18 this morning. All right, starting in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive, what? The crown of life, which God has promised to who? To those who love him. The steadfast believer is one whose heart is stayed on Jesus. The steadfast believer loves Jesus. Uh, Believers, this begs one simple and obvious question. Do you love him? Do you love the supposed Lord of your life? Do you remember when the the Pharisees sent a lawyer to, to question Jesus? What was the question that Jesus leveled to that lawyer? The lawyer came to, or sorry, the lawyer leveled to Jesus. The lawyer came to Jesus and he, he said this. He said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And how did Jesus respond to him? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. In other words, love the Lord with the totality of your being. Do do you have affections? Love Jesus with your affections. Do do you have a soul? Well, love him from the the innermost part of your being. Do do you have a, a mind? Well, love him with your thoughts. Do you have any strength in your body, your embodied experience? Love him with your embodied experience, with what you actually do with yourself in your life. Now, this verse wasn't really meant to be parsed out that way. And the principle is simply this, love him with the totality of your being. Love him holistically with all of who you are. Do you love like a steadfast believer? Because a steadfast believer who who, who demonstrates their steadfastness in their love for the Lord, it's it's that person who's going to receive the crown of life. Right? Look back at verse 12 with me. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to who? To those who love him. Now, a fair few Christians carry very silly notions in their head about what heaven will look like. They imagine themselves lounging about in hilltop mansions that overlook the glassy sea, And there they sit, wasting eternity away, sipping on non-alcoholic pina coladas with jewel-encrusted golden crowns on their heads. It is a silly picture. It is a silly way to think. But a lot of Christians think that way. Believer, that is not at all the image that James is trying to invoke. Not at all. To understand what James is getting at, we have to consider the context in which he is writing. 
James is writing in and to a Hellenized world. He's writing in and to a Hellenized world. In other words, he is writing in and to a world that is dominated by, by Greek and Roman culture. Even the, the, the Jewish Christians he is writing to have been dispersed and assimilated into this culture. So when James invokes the image of a crown, he is not invoking the image of some ostentatious jewel-encrusted golden crown. Rather, he is invoking the, the Greco-Roman image of a victor's crown. You see, those who competed in, in ancient athletic games would often be crowned with leaves of oak. Julius Caesar um, wore a wreath of laurels, which, which carried the double meaning of both victor and ruler. This, as Michael Card points out, went well with this infamous declaration that I came, I saw, I conquered, right? The image that James is invoking is the image of a victor's crown. This is the same sort of image that Paul invokes in 1 Corinthians 9.25 when he talked about the victorious life of Christian discipline. James is invoking the image of a victor's crown. And a victor's crown is reserved for those who love the Lord with the totality of their being. Believer, do you love Jesus like that? Do you love him like that? A few weeks ago, the Ironman Triathlon uh, was held here in Laconia. And you, remember, you may remember that the athletes were, were running um, by, the, uh, by the church as church was letting out. They were going right up here on, on Washington Street. And as we were watching them go by, Scott Estes turned to me, and he knows I'm into cycling and stuff, and he turned to me and he said, you know, you, you should do this. You, you should do this next year. You know, I was intrigued. I was like, you know what, that, that is actually, that's intriguing. Maybe, maybe I should do that. So I decided to go home and do some research. And I did some research on, on Iron Man, and I, and, and I learned this. Um, I learned that contestants in a half Ironman, which is, which is what was held here, they swim 1.2 miles, they cycle 56 miles, and they run 13.1 miles in that order on a single day. That's insane. <laughs> right? That's insane. That, that is intense. I also learned that an elite triathlete will spend a minimum of 20 hours a week preparing for an event. A faithful triathlete will go to bed early, wake up early, eat healthy, and follow a strict training regimen. These are the marks of a steadfast triathlete. Right? You can't just roll out of bed one day and decide I'm going to run in a, in a triathlon. It's not going to go well. You have to prepare for it. And that preparation is a characteristic of your life. It's something that's visible and tangible that you can see. It's a, these things are marks of the life. So, so what are the marks of a steadfast believer? Well, James answers this question thoroughly throughout his epistle. In a sense, it's, it's what his epistle is all about. So here just, here's just a, a few examples uh, from the greater context of the book of James. A steadfast believer maintains joy in the face of adversity, right? We saw that in week one of our study. A steadfast believer appeals to God for wisdom when perplexed and trusts God to provide. We saw that in week two of our study. A steadfast believer is, is quick to listen and, and, and slow to get angry. 
A steadfast believer listens to and heeds the word of God, right? He, he doesn't just study it, he puts it into practice. A steadfast uh, believer uh, faithfully serves those who are in need and elevates the lowly. A steadfast believer lives humbly before the Lord and he resists the devil. These are the marks of a steadfast believer. And all of this can be summed up this way. A steadfast believer is one who has moved beyond belief to conviction, and the fruit of that conviction is the quality that defines their life. A steadfast believer is one who has moved beyond belief to conviction, and the fruit of that conviction is the quality that defines their life. In other words, a steadfast believer loves the Lord their God with all of their heart, with all of their soul, with all of their strength, and with all of their mind. A steadfast believer loves with the totality of their being, and it shows. It's apparent. It's obvious. Believer, do you love like that? Do you love Jesus like that? Now, at this point, uh, we need to be diligent to hear what James is saying rather than what he's not saying, right? So as Pastor Brian has already pointed out to us in the series, James is not saying that we can live a perfect life. He's not saying that. In the greater context of his epistle, James makes it abundantly clear a perfect and sinless life is an impossibility. As Alistair Begg keenly points out, sin remains in our lives but it no longer reigns in our lives. Except when it does. Right? Believer, who is reigning in your life today? Who is reigning in your life today? Is Christ occupying the throne room of your heart or has something sinister usurped his rule in your life? Remember, a sermon about sin is really a sermon about love. It's about what we love. It's about the orientation of our desires and our affections towards God and towards the world. A steadfast believer is one who has moved beyond belief to conviction, and the fruit of that conviction is the quality that defines their life. Believer, does your life bear the fruit of your convictions? Or have your convictions been compromised? And if they have been compromised, then how have they become compromised? Look down at verse 13 with me. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Faithful, steadfast living is not a perfect life free of sin. It's not. But it is a life that is aware of the tempest of temptation that swirls around in the heart. Loved ones, what temptation may be swirling around in your heart today? What temptation might be swirling around in your heart today? 
Let me give you a little hint, a little direction. A temptation is any desire and enticement that draws you away from loving God. A temptation is any desire or enticement that draws you away from loving God. What may be drawing you away from loving God this morning? Every year I go fishing during the the bass spawn, and uh, it's it's really a lot of fun. Um, during the spawn, uh, the bass lay on their beds protecting their eggs. And in the crystal clear waters of Lake Winnipesaukee, if you're in a boat, you can sneak right up on those beds. And you can take your fishing lure and you can drop it right into their bed. And you know what those bass will do? They will leave the bed and they will hit that lure And before they know it, they're yanked out of the water and in the boat. That's the picture that we have here. We're tempted to sin and we're lured away from God. How? Because God has tempted us? No. Because our desires within us are waging an insurrection in a bid to dethrone the Lord of our hearts. A sermon about sin is really a sermon about love. It's about what we love. It's about the orientation of our desires and our affections towards God and towards the world. And this is just the way it was in the garden, right? Just the way it was in the garden. Look at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my brothers, for every what gift? Good gift. And every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. Every good gift is from the Father. Now think back to Genesis. In the beginning, God created the the heavens and the earth. And he saw they were good. In the beginning, God created the light, and he saw that it was good. In the beginning, God created the land and the sea, and he saw that it was good. In the beginning, God created the vegetation of the earth, and he saw that it was In the beginning, God created uh, the, the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sea, and he saw that they were good. In the beginning, God created humanity. He created the male and female, and he saw that everything he created was good. So he put his good little images in his good garden to tend his good creation. Then something went horribly wrong. Horribly wrong. Take your Bibles and turn back to me, with me to Genesis chapter 3. This is the account of the fall, Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall, eat of any, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, 
Why? Lest you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw, interesting, when the woman saw that the tree was for was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Now she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, remember what James said. Remember what James said. He said, do not be deceived, my brothers. Every what gift? Good gift is from the Father. Every good gift is from the Father. Now, this is fascinating. Uh, you can't make this stuff up. It's one of the reasons why I think the Bible is so amazing. Until this point in the creation narrative, until this point in the creation narrative, God was the one looking upon his creation and assessing its value. The phrase, and God saw that it was good, appears five times to this point. But what happens here? What happens here? When the woman saw that the tree was, what? Good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. What is going on? What is going on here? Before, it was God assessing the goodness of things. But now the woman is assessing the goodness of things, and she is, she is assessing as good that which was forbidden. What happened? What went wrong? She was deceived. She was deceived. By who? By the serpent? No. And he might have lied to her, but she wasn't deceived by him. Well, then who was she deceived by? Exactly. She was deceived by herself. She was tempted when she was lured and enticed by her own desire. Then her desire conceived, and it gave birth to sin. And when her sin was fully grown, it brought forth, as God and James promised it would, death. She deceived herself, and it brought death. But what was the, 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 that Billy Joel song? What was it he sang? Right? I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints, right? The sinners are much more fun. Well, the sinners aren't going to be laughing. Why? Why aren't they going to be laughing? Because sin is the self-deceived rejection of good. Sin is the self-deceived rejection of good. Now, the implications of this are huge. The implications of this are huge. In fact, the implications of this are quite literally of cosmic proportions. You see, it's not the good who die young. It is the unrepentant sinner that never gets to experience that which is good. 
It's not the good who die young. It's the unrepentant sinner that never gets to experience that which is truly good. Why does sin lead to death? You ever wonder that? Why does sin lead to death? It's simple. Sin leads to death because sin draws us away from the Creator. It draws us away from the source of all of life in the cosmos, the source of all goodness in the universe. Sin uses the deception of our own desires to draw us away from the only thing in this universe that actually matters. You know what the real problem with Billy Joel's theology is? The real problem with Billy Joel's theology is this. He's deceived. He's deceived. His view of God is way too small. And because his view of God is way too small, he, he can't assess what is actually good. He can't even recognize it. He can't even recognize it. Actually, uh, the, the song that Melissa picked out uh, leading into the sermon was just so perfect. In fact, I wrote one of the lines down uh, as we were singing it last time. And the line is this, I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. That's Billy Joel. He's lost in darkest night, but he thinks he knows the way. He thinks he knows the way. Now remember, we started things off with the proposition that a steadfast believer is one whose heart is stayed on Jesus. They love him. They love him. And this proposition raised for us a serious question. Do you love him? Do you love Jesus? And remember, we, we said a steadfast believer loves the Lord their God with all of their heart, with all of their soul, with all of their strength, and with all of their mind. A steadfast believer loves with the totality of their being, and it shows. So do you love him like that? Do you love Jesus? Now, I, I would venture to guess that in a room this large, some of us might struggle to give an affirmative answer to that question, um, at least not without some significant reflection. And, and we should reflect on it. We all should, because it is the steadfast believer who demonstrates their steadfastness and their love for the Lord who will receive the crown of life, right? Once again, verse 12, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to who? To those who love him. So do you love him? Do you love him? Do you love Jesus? Or are you deceived? Let's pray. No, of course we're not going to end the sermon there. Come on. <laughs> That'd be a terrible place to end a sermon. That'd be a terrible place to end a sermon. Why? Well, because a sermon about sin is really a sermon about love, right? Yes, it's about what we love. It's about the orientation of our desires and our affections towards God and the world. But it's also about what God loves. It's about what God loves. It's about the orientation of his desires and his affections towards us in the world. Look down at verse 17. Every good and, and, and every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by what? The word of truth, 
that we should be kind of first fruits of his creatures. He brought us forth by what? The word of truth. What is the word of truth? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. He brought us forth by the power of the gospel. And and, and as we sang earlier, we love why? Because he loved us. Come on. First. We love because he loved us first. And through the power of the cross, he, he has given the repentant sinner power to live. Power to live. Right? We also sang in that song earlier that you bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. We can't live a perfect life, but we can live a redeemed life in the power of the cross. And Jesus empowers us to, to, to obedience. See, our obedience, and this is really what James is getting at, our obedience is an outcome of our faith in his power that he has instilled in us. Last year, this last December, um, Pastor Brian came down with COVID, and I had to preach last minute. I think I had maybe a day to prepare. And... uh, I do not like to preach extemporaneously. I really have to work to enunciate that word. I don't like to preach extemporaneously um, for, for the reason that I am very good at putting my foot in my mouth. Right? If, if they gave out gold medals in the Olympics for putting your foot in your mouth, I, I'd get it every single time. And so I like to manuscript my sermons. But in that moment, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do that. And um, frankly, I, I don't really remember what that sermon was about. It went fine. I, I don't remember what the sermon was about. But I do remember one thing I said. And because and it didn't, like, one of the reasons I like the manuscript is because I can be very intentional about what it is I'm going to say. And, and so I said something that, that I, I would have said differently afterwards. When I thought about it. And what I said was this. I said, I don't think I could ever walk away from the Lord. Now that, that sounds kind of pretentious. It sounds kind of self-righteous. That is not the heart in which I intended it. It's not the way I meant it. What I meant it, it the spirit I meant it in is this. I don't think I could walk away from the Lord because I don't think he'd let me. Right? He left the 99 for the one right? I don't think I could walk away from the Lord. And I think this is how true believers endure. It's because he has embedded in my heart, as I hope that he has embedded in your heart, the word of truth, the gospel of life. He's endowed life to you. He's endowed you with the spirit and he's given you the power to believe and to obey. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? And, and that's, that's how things come about. That, that, that's how we achieve the crown of life. That's how we live a life of, 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 of obedience. It's through the power of the cross and Jesus Christ at work in us. Amen? All right, now the sermon's really done. All right? 
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for the great love of which you loved us. Lord, I thank you that you mounted the cross despising the shame. Lord, so that our shame could be removed from us. So that we could be receive your spirit and be empowered to live in the power that you provide. Lord, I just pray that you would give each one of us just a spirit of discernment. Lord, that when the, the deceptions creep up in our heart, that we would be quick to notice them. That we'd be faithful to, to, to deal with them. Lord, give us a, a willingness to evaluate, a humility to evaluate, a humility to acknowledge the sins that we know are present in our lives. Lord, give us, give us all these things that we may achieve and receive the crown of life. I ask all this in your name. Amen.